Hello, I'm R.A. Spratt. I write and perform this podcast. If you'd like to support the show, I'm a children's author, so you can buy a book by me, or you can buy me a coffee by going to buymeacoffee.com slash stories R.A. Spratt. It's an easy way to make a small thank you gift to the show so I can keep kicking this can down the road. The podcast directory you're using right now should have a link to my Buy Me A Coffee page in the show notes, or you can type it into your browser. That's buymeacoffee.com slash stories R.A. Spratt. All contributions are gratefully appreciated. Hello and welcome to Bedtime Stories with me, R.A. Spratt. Well, I am finally back in my office in Barrel. It is so good to be home. I loved all the travel. I've been on the road for nine weeks now, um, going all around Australia, all different states and hopping on and off planes and, and meeting so many kids by visiting their schools because that's what we authors do during book week is we go around and do school visits. Um, and it was wonderful, but I am so glad to be home and back at my desk and back to writing again. Uh, and I did want to especially thank the people who came out to the two podcast live record shows that we had in Parramatta, Sydney, and in Belcon and Canberra. Uh, thank you so much. It's been my dream for years and years to be doing these live stage shows and to finally do it and to pull it off and for it actually to go really, really well and to see everybody and see how excited you've all been by these years of listening to my stories. You know, it was really wonderful. So thank you. Uh, there's one more of these shows coming up and that's in Auckland, um, Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, I, I was invited to go to New Zealand for this festival, the Story Fest in Queenstown. Um, and so I agreed to that. I thought, oh, yeah, it'll just be a couple of days away from home. But uh, of course, with everything I do, it, it expands. As soon as I agree to a small thing, it be- rapidly becomes a big thing. So I, I'm doing some school visits in Queenstown, which are organized by the festival. But then there is one live uh live event in Queenstown, and that's on the 31st of October at 3.30 in the afternoon. I'm going to be doing a talk. I think it might actually be a panel talk with some other people as well at Frankton Library. So if you're in Queenstown and I'm not visiting your school, you can come and see me there. Um, the next date I'm doing for a public event in New Zealand is in Christchurch, and that's on the 1st of November at 4pm at the Telling Tales Bookshop. I'll be doing a book signing and a bit of storytelling. And then the, the podcast show, the third in the series of live podcast shows. I'm going to be appearing in Auckland at the Pump House Theatre doing one of these live stage shows on the 2nd of November at 6pm. Now that's a ticketed event so you can get tickets either through my website raspratt.com or go to the theatre's website that's the Pump House Theatre or you can go to my Facebook page at raspratt. Um, anyway and there should be details for how to go to any of my live shows uh, in the link in the, the, the episode notes. All right. I hope that's clear. So that's what's coming up in New Zealand. So please, if you're in New Zealand, come along and buy tickets if you're in Auckland. All right. That's all the business done. Let's get down to a story because that is why we're here. All right. So um, I've obviously been crazy busy on tour for nine weeks. Uh, miraculously, I haven't got sick yet, but I am very, very behind in writing my 
book that I was supposed to have delivered a few months ago, and it's really, really due now. And the book I'm working on is Friday Barnes 12. So since I'm working on Friday Barnes 12, and I didn't really have time to write a fresh episode for this week, I thought no one would mind if I just read you a short story from Friday Barnes 11. That way I can get my head into the Friday Barnes world again, and you can get your head into Friday Barnes and listen to a cool story from the last book. So that's what we're going to do today. I am going to read to you from Friday Barnes' Last Chance, which, as I like to think of it, is the one set in Paris, and it's Chapter 12, Fake Date Night. Here we go. When Friday climbed out through the living room window onto the fire escape at 9.28 that evening, the first thing she noticed was that the steel railings were freezing cold. December in Paris was nippy during the day, but as soon as the sun went down, the temperature dropped like a stone. It was also dark, and Friday's eyes hadn't adjusted properly yet. It was disconcerting that the only thing beneath her feet was a steel grate, and that she could see through it. The five-storey drop made her stomach lurch. Friday clutched the railing tightly. Friday did not care for heights, or anything that involved coordination. Walking down a fire escape without looking at her feet was going to be a challenge. She edged around the landing until she was standing at the top of the first flight of steps. I can do this, muttered Friday, trying to convince herself by saying the words out loud. She took a deep breath, closed her eyes, and began her descent. She concentrated on counting each step. Math always took her mind off things. She didn't like the way the fire escape creaked each time she put her foot down. Thirteen. There were thirteen steps before she arrived at the turn in the stairs. She pivoted, eyes still closed, and took the next thirteen to the fourth floor landing. Hello. Friday flinched back. There was a voice centimetres from her face. When she opened her eyes, it was Ian. You, said Friday. Who did you expect? asked Ian. Do you get lots of notes asking you to meet someone on the fire escape at 9.30? I thought I'd meet you at the bottom, said Friday. I guessed you might have trouble with the heights, said Ian. This is my floor. I thought I'd wait for you here and help you get down the rest of the way. This would have been sweet if the twinkle in Ian's eye hadn't made Friday suspect that he was laughing at her. I was managing, said Friday. Another three flights and you would have been traumatised, said Ian. We can't have you in shock when your brain needs to be in top form. Why, asked Friday. What do you need my brain for? We're going to the Louvre to meet Bernie, said Ian. The world's leading Leonardo da Vinci expert has just flown in from Berlin. He's going to examine the painting tonight after the gallery closes. Oh, said Friday. What, said Ian. Well, your note said this was a date, said Friday. Did it, said Ian. Well, it implied it, said Friday. We're meant to be undercover, said Ian. I couldn't leave a note to say that we had to meet an art expert to determine if the Mona Lisa had been stolen. What if one of your dorm mates read it? Oh, they did all read it, said Friday. There you go, said Ian. I was being subtle. Okay, said Friday. You're disappointed this isn't a date, aren't you, said Ian. He was definitely smirking now. Of course not, said Friday. Dates are anachronistic. Redundant, really. It's silly in this age of post-fourth-wave feminism to entertain outdated notions of how Ian leaned forward and kissed her. What was that for, asked Friday. To make things a little datish, said Ian. Obviously, I am a post-fourth-wave feminist myself, but I like to respect ancient cultural traditions. Come on, we don't want to be late for Bernie. Ian took Friday by the hand and led her down the stairs. She forgot that it was a fire escape for a moment. With Ian's fingers wrapped around hers, her feet went into autopilot. All her brain could focus on was how nice it was to hold a warm hand after holding the cold steel railing for so long. Do you want to grab a hire scooter? asked Ian. It'll be quicker. 
Are you kidding, said Friday? You know my sense of balance. I'm not going to be able to help the investigation if I'm roadkill. We could share one, said Ian. That would be very date-like. Can't we just walk, said Friday? I know the idea of a couple sharing an e-scooter seems romantic, but there'll be nothing romantic about the trip to the emergency room when I inevitably break my wrist. Fine, said Ian. I tried. When they arrived at the loo, the security guard at the passage glow entrance was expecting them. Ian and Friday flashed their Interpol IDs, and they were soon inside. Where to? asked Friday. The Mona Lisa room, said Ian. Yes, but where's that? asked Friday. I thought you and Melanie went there this afternoon, said Ian. Well, we did, but we'll never find it again without a map, said Friday. This place is a maze. Ian looked perplexed. It's just across the main lobby, up the east staircase for two floors, right towards the Antiquities Wing, right again past the headless statue of winged victory over Summerthrace, down the corridor and left into room 711, Italian paintings. I don't even know where the main lobby is, said Friday, looking about at the dimly lit corridors that spread out in three different directions from where they were standing. Ian stared at her in disbelief for a moment. It's the big room in the middle of the building, with a glass pyramid on top, he said. It's hard to miss. How can you be so smart but be so confused by the layout of a building? If we were outside, that would be different, said Friday. I could navigate by the stars. Ian took out his mobile. You need to get a phone. What, so I can use Google Maps, said Friday? Any hacker can use that data to track your location, you know. They could, agreed Ian, but you can also download a compass app. Ian tapped an icon on the screen and a compass appeared. Now you can navigate. That is pretty cool, said Friday, genuinely impressed. But I could also use my actual compass. She pulled a compass out of her pocket and held it on her palm. It looked just like Ian's app. Ian rolled his eyes. Come on, we need to go south. He grabbed her hand again and started striding confidently into the bowels of the building. A few minutes, several staircases, and many twists and turns later, they turned into the room where the Mona Lisa was on display. Friday was breathless from trying to keep pace with Ian. When she stepped into the room, she was delighted to see her uncle. Bernie, she cried. Oh, you're here, said Uncle Bernie. Friday hurried over to hug him, then thought better of it, which made Bernie self-conscious. Then, after the awkward hesitation, Friday suddenly felt like crying. Being a deductive genius, she realised this was probably because she'd been through so much upheaval in the past ten days. She was really glad to see her lovable, kind-hearted uncle. Friday lunged forward to hug him, which Bernie didn't quite anticipate, so it ended up being that she sort of half-hugged his waist while Bernie patted her shoulders. Ian rolled his eyes. You two are as painfully awkward as each other. You're looking much better than the last time I saw you, Bernie told Friday. Less blue. What were you doing in Germany? asked Friday. Uh, finding an expert or connoisseur, as they're called in the art world, said Bernie. Ian chuckled. I thought a connoisseur was an ice cream. Oh, I'd love an ice cream, said Bernie wistfully. He turned to look at the group of men standing over near the Mona Lisa. They were all dressed in suits. They exuded importance. But we've got to deal with this first. Are you going to introduce us? asked Friday. Probably better if I don't, said Uncle Bernie. The tall guy on the left in the sharp suit is the director of the gallery. He's a bit upset already. Anything could set him off into a full-blown tantrum at this point. You better just observe. Observe what? asked Friday. A connoisseur, said Uncle Bernie. Professor Abernathy is going to examine the painting. The Professor Bertram Abernathy, asked Friday, from Leipzig University and former director of the Central Institute. The one and only, said Bernie. I've got his book, said Friday. 
She opened her shoulder bag and pulled out the massive textbook she'd read on the plane. It's very thorough, very, very thorough. Even I found it dry, and I like reading theoretical physics dissertations. Friday peered around Uncle Bernie. A very small, very elderly man was standing next to the balustrade in front of the Mona Lisa. A large, old-fashioned leather briefcase sat at his feet. But Professor Abernathy wasn't looking at the painting. He was looking at his shoes, which admittedly were quite interesting, because one was black while the other was brown. Professor Abernathy seemed to be lost in deep thought, although he may simply have been trying to politely ignore the director of the Louvre, who seemed to be working himself up into a full-blown rage. "'I forbid it! I forbid it!' declared the director, holding his finger in the air and waggling it to emphasise his point, as if he wanted God up in heaven to see what was going on. "'But we just want to take a look,' said another man. This man was very well-dressed and well-groomed, a bit too well, perhaps. He looked like he dyed his hair and had an extensive skincare regime. "'That's the Minister for the Arts and Cultural Affairs,' said Bernie. "'I asked him to come and reason with the director. "'I thought the director was being difficult with me because I'm a foreigner.' "'And you do look like a thug,' said Friday. "'Yes, that too,' agreed Bernie, glancing down at his large waistline. "'Uncle Bernie had played ice hockey for the Riga Raiders in his youth. "'He was very large and very stocky. "'Somehow, despite being married to an ardent vegetarian, "'he still managed to maintain a very high-calorie, high-cholesterol diet.' These arts types are tremendously prejudiced against the burly. You should be ashamed, the director was still denouncing the minister. You are a traitor to this country. It turns out, whispered Uncle Bernie, that the director is just as rude to his fellow countrymen. You are vandals, said the director. All of you are seeking to vandalise this great national treasure. Friday made a snorting sound. The director's head snapped around. Who is this little girl who sounds like a pig, demanded the director. You bring in crowds of children now to insult me? Not crowds, said Uncle Bernie, just two. They're investigative consultants from Interpol. They're just here to observe. And to make animal noises, said the director. Now we have an oaf and a pig. You're the one who's being oafish, said Ian, protectively taking a half step towards Friday. And now I am to be insulted inside my own gallery, demanded the director. It's not your gallery, said Friday. It belongs to the people of France. I'm insulted again, declared the director. The child pig explains my job to me. Ian took Friday's hand and squeezed it, a little too hard, like he wanted to use that hand to punch the director, but squeezing Friday's hand was the next best thing. Professor Abernathy just wants to take a look at the painting, said the minister calmly, as if he were speaking to a deranged lunatic, not a museum director. He can look, he can look all day long, said the director. Let the man look. I am not stopping him. But to observe the brush strokes and colour properly, he needs to see the painting without the bulletproof glass, said Uncle Bernie, in the tone of a man who had said the same thing several times before. No, 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 said the director. The case maintains perfect temperature and humidity to preserve the masterpiece. I refuse to allow it to be exposed to pollution. But the Mona Lisa was exposed to open air for 400 years before it was put behind glass in 1956, said Friday. An extra half hour while the professor looks at it won't do any harm. Oh, the pig girl is an expert in paint preservation also, said the director sarcastically. This girl, she is most incredible. She is, actually, said Ian. Jean-Pierre, please, said the minister. I refuse, said the director. I hold the only key to this case. No one can open it without my permission. I do not give that permission. We can get a court order, said Uncle Bernie. You could just punch him and take it, mumbled Ian. You think you could get a court order, said the director. Pah, I would like to see you try. The judiciary in this country respects the arts. They will protect the Mona Lisa from being violated. Ahem, 
said Professor Abernathy, speaking for the first time. He spoke slowly and with a quavering voice distinctive of the elderly. Perhaps you should have had this discussion before flying me here. I'm sorry, sir, said Uncle Bernie. I knew the director didn't want the painting to be physically tested. I didn't realise he also had an objection to be viewed as well. I will return to my home in Leipzig, said the professor, picking up his bag and handing it to his assistant. You can contact me if you resolve this issue. No, please, said the minister. You're here now. Can you please inspect the painting through the glass? See if there is anything noteworthy. Hey, parents. Yeah, you. Are you looking for a podcast your kids will really love? Well, we made one just for you. And for us. As genuine, all-natural kids ourselves, we know what makes a fun and interesting podcast. So we decided to make it ourselves. Every show is packed with interviews, stories, and on-the-ground reporting. We have interviewed everyone from scientists to Grammy Award-winning musicians to NFL quarterbacks. Listen to Wild Interest wherever you get your podcasts. The professor shook his head. This is not ideal, not ideal at all. No, but the glass is clean. You brought your equipment with you. You have magnifying lenses you can hold against the glass to observe the brush strokes in detail, said the minister. You will be able to form some opinion. The professor made some soft clucking noises. Friday suspected he just wanted to go home. All the elderly people she'd ever known always wanted to go home once it got dark outside. He didn't look like he'd be an exception. But there were so many people in the room, aside from Friday, Ian, Bernie, the director and the minister. There were also several security guards, ministerial assistants and gallery staff standing around watching the professor. He obviously felt he had to do something, so he approached the painting. If you would be so kind, the professor said. A security guard was blocking the end of the balustrade. The professor waved his hand, indicating that he would like to pass through to the other side and get closer. The security guard looked to the director for instruction. The director looked mutinous, but even he, a deeply unreasonable man, could not think of a reasonable or unreasonable excuse not to let this frail old man get closer to the thick, bulletproof glass. The professor shuffled around and stood directly in front of the Mona Lisa. There was just the width of the bench between him and the glass protecting the painting. His assistant came forward and put the professor's equipment bag on the bench top. The director audibly hissed at this imposition. The assistant opened the bag and took out several tools before handing the professor a magnifying glass. Thank you, said the professor politely. The assistant bobbed his head, almost like a bow, then stepped back. The professor put the large end of the magnifying aid to his eye, the small one to the glass, and slowly moved across the surface as he methodically looked at every tiny detail. Friday watched, fascinated. So did everyone else in the room. It was so quiet, and the room was set up like a shrine. It felt like they were observing a religious ritual. And, like a religious ritual, the whole process went on for a mesmerizingly long time. Uncle Bernie started to fidget. Even Ian was shifting from foot to foot, waiting for the professor to make some sort of proclamation. Professor Abernathy had, so far, methodically worked his way across about half of the painting with the eyepiece. His pronouncement was not likely to come any time soon. Friday was fascinated by his meticulous process. She opened her copy of the professor's book and started jotting notes on the title page. The professor kept up his inspection for nearly half an hour. No one said anything. They just watched the old man at work. Eventually, Professor Abernathy stepped back, looked at the painting from that position, then shook his head. No, said the professor. It's not the Mona Lisa, said Uncle Bernie. 
Outrageous slander, accused the director. Professor Abernathy winced. No, not no. No, that's not what I meant, said the professor. Well, well, maybe. But in this case, I mean, no, I can't give an opinion. What, said Uncle Bernie? Yes, exclaimed the director in triumph. I cannot be sure, said the professor. Not without a closer inspection. Even then, he trailed off, tilting his head to one side and pouting. Da Vinci was so experimental that... Any idiosyncratic techniques could be evidence of a forgery or simply that he was trying new things. It would take years of minute analysis to form an opinion. Even then, it would just be that, an opinion. But you must have a hunch, said Ian, a sense about it. If you've studied all da Vinci's work for years, you must have a feeling whether or not this is one of them. The professor took off his glasses. He cleaned the thick lenses with a handkerchief while shaking his head and smiling. I have been called here to give my expert opinion, and I have done that, said the professor. As he put the glasses back on, his face and his attitude came back into focus. I can't be sure, not under these conditions. This was apparently the only firm statement he was prepared to give. Bernie slumped. The director of the gallery looked smug. Before you go, Professor, said Friday, stepping forward and holding out her huge book, I really enjoyed reading your book. Could you please sign my copy for me? The Professor looked surprised, but also a little delighted to be presented with a copy of his own work. Of course, oh yes, of course. Not many young ladies ask for my autograph. Oh, what a shocker, said Ian sarcastically. Friday kicked Ian in the foot to get him to be quiet. She held open the book at the title page and handed it to the Professor. Do you have a pen? asked the professor. Yes, but so do you, said Friday, in your breast pocket. The professor tapped his chest. Ah, so I do. He took out a fountain pen and signed his name with a flourish. Thank you, said Friday, taking back the book and turning it to herself to read. I suspected you were a fraud and you've just given me proof. What? said Uncle Bernie. You can't insult Professor Abernathy, said the minister. He's the world's leading expert on high Renaissance masters. I know, said Friday. His book was wonderfully insightful. But Professor Abernathy wrote it in 1979, when he was a much younger man. He may have been able to give an opinion then. But now, I think the only reason he's refusing to give an opinion is because he is as blind as a bat. How dare you, said the professor. This girl is a disgrace, said the director. Bats aren't actually blind, said Ian. I know that, said Friday. I'm sure the professor isn't either. But there's a big difference between being able to see that there is a painting on a wall and being able to identify the trajectory of the microscopic cracks in the pigment. Friday, please explain yourself, pleaded Bernie. Otherwise, you're about to get yourself and me in a lot of trouble. I know the professor can barely see, said Friday, because he couldn't even tell that he was looking through his magnifying lens the wrong way. Friday reached over the balustrade and picked up the eyepiece the professor had just used. She held it up to show everyone. He was looking through the wide end. That wouldn't magnify anything. It would make things look smaller. Uncle Bernie reached for the lens and held it to his own eye. Oh my gosh, she's right. He handed the lens to the minister so he could see for himself. This means nothing, protested the professor. The girl is mistaken. I had it in my hand. She could not have seen this. We all watched you for 30 minutes, said Ian. You definitely held the wide end to your eye. And it's not the only evidence of your failing eyesight, said Friday. I noticed that you're a very dapper dresser, which is not surprising, given your appreciation for fine arts. And yet you're wearing mismatched shoes of different colours.
Well, so it was dark when I got dressed, said the professor. A man is allowed to make these simple mistakes like this, I think, when he's called upon in the night by Interpol and asked to fly to another country. I suppose, conceded Friday, but there is also the fact that you just signed a written confession that you were blind right here with your own fountain pen. Friday opened a book and turned the title page around to show everyone in the room. The professor's oversized ink signature stood out, but there were several handwritten lines in Biro written directly above it. What you failed to notice, Professor, is that I wrote right here the words, I, Professor Abernathy, declare that I am legally blind, read Friday. Everyone in the room leaned forward to get a better look. I realise that English is not your first language, so just to be sure, I wrote these words four times over, once each in English, French, German and Latin. I reason that you must be able to speak at least one, if not all those languages, and yet you signed directly below without noticing. Only someone with atrocious eyesight could do that, and someone with atrocious eyesight would not be capable of properly assessing a painting's authenticity. Professor, is this true? asked the minister. The professor looked like he wanted to deny it all, but eventually he nodded his head. Why didn't you say something? asked Bernie. Why agree to this whole thing? For the fee, of course, said the director scathingly. A connoisseur can command quite a fee for his authentication services. Has he actually been giving opinions, though? asked Friday. There's a growing trend among art experts not to give opinions on valuable paintings because they don't want to give evidence in court. This is true. The easiest opinion is no opinion, confessed the professor. Giving an opinion on the authenticity of a valuable painting exposes you to so much criticism. In the courts and in the industry periodicals, one is forced to have the same arguments over and over again for decades. It is deeply unpleasant. Well, if you don't want to give an opinion, said Uncle Bernie, who can? The professor looked exhausted. May I sit down? Ian brought over the docent's chair. The professor's assistant found him a bottle of water. He took a sip and composed himself a little, enough to explain things. "'No one can give an opinion,' began the professor. "'It's not like the olden days when the experts were the experts. "'These days the experts are the forgers. "'They have computers and chemists and printers and projectors. "'The things they can do to replicate 16th-century techniques is inconceivable.' It is unrecognisable to the naked eye. So really, your eyesight is irrelevant, said Friday. An opinion is not proof. And you're the leading expert, said Bernie. So if the director won't let us do a chemical analysis of a paint sample, then what can we do? The minister sighed. We'll have to ask a judge for a court order to take a sample. Outrageous, spat the director. It would be an outrageous desecration of a great work of art. Then why don't you take another tack, said Friday. What, you think Bernie should be giving up investigating art crime and go back to being a professional ice hockey player, joked Ian. No, said Friday, rolling her eyes. I mean that the painting is not the only clue. If we want to know if the forgery allegation is correct, we should look at the allegation itself, the letter. Well, it's with Perugia's great niece in Italy, said Bernie. Would she let us analyse it, asked Friday. I don't see that she could refuse, said Bernie. It's not a masterpiece. It's evidence in a criminal investigation. You should go and see her, said Friday. Sure, if I drive the professor back to the airport, I can get the late flight to Rome, said Uncle Bernie, checking his watch. But I'm meant to be meeting the local agent here, uh, Brianna OKK. She's a recent recruit. The governor says she thinks we'll make a good team. Really, said Ian. Have you done something to annoy the governor? 
And that is the end of the chapter. So we'll leave it there. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed that we're back in the office, in my house. It's good to be recording here again. And hopefully, fingers crossed, I will have a fresh episode for you next week. I've got a few ideas of stories I can write up. So that's it for now. And until next time, goodbye.